Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Quiz time. Who was the first black composer to have their work staged at the Metropolitan Opera? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. If you guessed six-time Grammy Award-winning composer, trumpeter, and pianist Terence Blanchard, you are correct. Blanchard's Fire Shop in My Bones was the first opera by a Black composer to be performed at the Metropolitan Opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we will have the first of three episodes exploring how the operatic canon is being expanded, featuring Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans. In this episode, he will dive into two new productions that have pushed the boundaries of the canon, Terrence Blanchard's Champion and Kevin Putz's The Hours. I'm so glad to have you all with me. So today we're doing Expanding the Canon, and today we're looking at new works. Now, I guess the first thing I should talk about is what is the operatic canon? Well, the operatic canon is a set of works, well, canon generally actually comes, it's a literature term, so it's usually referring to like great books that we see so they call the canon of great works, so things like Moby Dick and things like that. But we also apply this term to opera. And so it come, with the operatic canon, we have works that are highly valued, considered classics, and also performed regularly. And I'm sure many of you already have ideas of what those might be at the Metropolitan Opera, which is definitely an exemplar of what the operatic canon is. So we have things like La Traviata, we have La Boheme, and Butterfly, which we see most seasons. Now in this series, we're talking about things that don't appear every season, or perhaps never even before, such as the new works we're going to look at today. What I do want to note, and what will sort of be uh, an overlying theme in this lecture series, is basically how the canon tends to reflect our, as an audience, our perceptions of opera, our beliefs of what opera can be, but also our beliefs in what art can be and what we as human beings can be. And so that will be something that's sort of shadowing in the background of this entire series. All right, so what is the actual series? Well, the series, as I mentioned, explores the different relationships that opera has with the canon, but also our different approaches to changing the canon. If we want to, um, I like to see it expanded. I hope you also like to see it expanded. Uh, so for today, our first lecture is going to be about new works. So we're looking at the hours and we're looking at champions. So things that, um, although champion has been performed before, operas that have not been seen as much. And so we'll say 21st century operas. How about that? All right, so that's our journey. But we're first starting with new works. 
Now, I think it's nice to start this topic, particularly with some of the new news that has happened with uh, in New York, and particularly with the Metropolitan Opera. I'm sure many of you got to read this article that came out at the end of last year, which talks about pandemic woes lead Met Opera to tap endowment and embrace new work. Um, and so what happened here is that there was a big or a radical shift at the Metropolitan Opera in realizing, oh, I don't know if realizing, but at least curving to the fact that there's a changing audience taste happened, whether this is because uh, older generations who are more familiar with traditional work are frankly not comfortable to come to the opera. That's part, part of it. Um, but there's also this desire now after long, many decades at the Metropolitan Opera where we didn't see a lot of uh, new works being performed uh, to have those. And also the fact that it's bringing in, it, at least we've seen proven with things like Fire Shut Up My Bones when it was performed, you have a very diverse audience happening, people who don't normally come to the Metropolitan Opera. So it's very exciting to see that. And I think the Metropolitan Opera is curving and hoping that that can become a permanent uh, part of the Met's canon. So anyway, there is sad news, of course, the fact that about the endowment, but this is also exciting news. And I just want to note some of the things that are being added. You've seen them all this season with the release. There's Dead Man Walking, there's Florencia uh, on El Amazonas, and then there's El Nino, and then the Life and Times of Malcolm X that we're going to see next season. Uh, I also wanted to explore briefly, there was uh, a few days after that article came out, there were some letters to the editor about why people speculated this was happening. Uh, one writer said, one reason for the decline in the Met attendance is the fact that the younger generation typically goes through elementary and secondary school without ever being exposed to opera. I can speak from my own experience. Um, I was very privileged, actually. Uh, I didn't really experience opera in elementary school, but then I went to a high school that was a performing arts school. And so there, I at least got it teased. I mean, I, I went to see the magic flute. I did all the things that one does in high school. Um, well, one does as a burgeoning, you know, opera person. But I did want to actually note a little caveat to this point, which is that although people are not necessarily learning about traditional opera in elementary school and high school, they might be hearing other musics, other musics that will get incorporated into new operas, such as what we've seen with Fire Shut Up In My Bones, as well as Champion. And so there is an argument to say that maybe it's on us to bring up our operas in that still pay homage to the past operas that we love, but simultaneously include these musics that a lot of younger generations are more acquainted with. And then the next one that I really also enjoy is, while I applaud the Met's recent efforts to present and commission new works, opera companies in Philadelphia, St. Louis, uh, or St. Louis, sorry, I'm being very Canadian. Cincinnati, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have been in the forefront of commissioning and presenting new works over the past three decades, including works by black, Latino, and women composers. And this is absolutely very true. Um, one of the things I've noticed in the way that the news portrays the Metropolitan Opera with new works is that it often overshadows where these works were tried out first to see if they were successful. And the Metropolitan Opera, as I'm sure many of you know, can be very hesitant about bringing new works, understandably, because you have this massive house with so many seats that you have to sell, so you need to know that it's going to be something people want to see, right? But I still think it's important to note the different degrees and levels of what other opera companies can and want to do, and then also what the Metropolitan Opera is able to do. Um, so some of the things I did want to note while I sort of yell new operas at you again is that, so Champion... Uh, among Dead Man Walking, Florencia, El Nino, and The Life and Time of Malcolm X, which are the majority of the new operas we're seeing in the Met season next season, uh, are actually all revivals that came from these other houses. And so the only uh, new one that's been commissioned by the Met is The Hours. So next, I wanted to jump into our discussion of The Hours. So here is a roundtable that happened uh, where several of the creatives were discussing basically the process that came about of commissioning this opera and bringing it together. 
And what I want you, what we're going to hear here is Yannick is talking about the Met's new mission and trying to include more new works and why. And then the other thing that I think is interesting that he brings up is also Peter Gelb's hesitance often to bringing new works that haven't been tried out elsewhere because of, as I mentioned, the challenge of filling a house like the Met. So here is that clip. When I believe in something, I want to love it and I want to bring it to the finish line with all my heart. Now, I also think that to broaden the horizons of the Met and of opera in general and realizing, which is my mission and my passion along with Peter now, to really make the Met a important force, not only about being the best opera house in the world, but putting those resources, the best opera resources, you know, from everyone in the company behind creating new works and be more in the locomotive of it at the front of the train, you know. And that, for it, needs a lot of uh, open mind. So when new ideas come, I think it's important to first say, what could be great about this? However, in this case, you know, René believing in it, and this is something maybe René doesn't remember, um, and Kevin probably doesn't know. But right after around this song cycle, we connected, I don't know how, somewhere, you know, in a concert or something, and I remember so clearly you said, you know, if you ever want to, someone who writes for The Voice, I'm just singing, Kevin puts music, he writes for The Voice so beautifully, Yannick, if ever you want. I remember this, and that was before the opera. So I, and it's true, and I think these ladies can say it even better than I, and I do. So what I mean is that in this case, I think so many ingredients were there to be enthusiastic and put all our resources uh, for, uh, forward, especially because this is, and that's what's very important, this is, the Met has been doing last year three new operas. This year is doing more. When I say new operas, meaning recent operas. But this one is a world premiere. And it's a world premiere because I got Peter to agree to it because he loves to have it done somewhere before because it's always better the second time. He has a point. However, I got him to say, look, I want to be part of the birth of a piece. And I got him to do this because I said, let me do it first in Philadelphia as a concert. And it worked out perfectly this way. So that's why I'm, uh, see, I'm already so enthusiastic about it. <laughs> yes. But yes, I mean, we don't accept, you know, if that's your question, we have a fantastic program, Lincoln Center New Works, which have fostered the great new operas in the last decade. But of course, we don't bring everything on stage unless we really, truly believe in it. For those of you who have been to some of my lectures, I always mention this history of opera. And this is partially because it's written by two people who are sort of pinnacles in my field of musicology and also people, two people, individuals I revere as writers. So this is a history of opera that was written in 2012 and it was written by Carolyn Abate and Roger Parker. And in it, they sort of bring up some of the major issues in opera as an aging art form, one that is not necessarily engaging uh, with some current ideas and current musics. And then also as a, a, an art form that uh, is, is sort of a museum piece and like what that means and how, as a result, yeah, it engages new audiences. So I'm going to be coming back throughout this series. I was sort of inspired by this little quote that they said, and I'm going to keep coming back to it throughout the lecture. 
And so what they say is that the question of opera and boredom also arises as a broad historical conundrum. Why did the composing of opera, which for so long belonged to the present, became around the time of the Second World War, a gesture to the past? So what they're noting here is how opera in the past, throughout the 17th century, the 18th century, and even the 19th century, which we'll discuss, things start to change there. We'll discuss in our next lecture a little more. Where opera, it was always expected to be new. It'd be like going to the movies. You'd see a new movie. Or even going to musical theater now, which is also having its own little canon. Like, I mean, the Sondheim canon is really happening right now. At that time, you expected to see new opera and then throw the other one out. But now we, we have this appreciation now of musical works, that these things are supposed to be permanent and great. Anyway, so what I wanted to note is that until the 19th century, as I mentioned, most operas were written for a specific season, a specific theater. They might tour a bit, but usually not really much after that. The only uh, exception in why I put Jean-Baptiste Lully up here, he's a composer from uh, the 17th century, and he created this sort of uh, uh, repertoire, which was called a Tragédie Lyrique, and this was for the Sun King at the time in the, uh, in the 17th century, and these, these were these great, magnificent operas that were supposed to represent the, um, the glory of the monarchy, and so they became sort of a repertoire because they were, they were supposed to be this canon of works that represented the king. Um, but other than that, I wanted to give an exception, just so that if you guys go home and look at your textbook and be like, oh my god, what is Matthew talking about? He's absolutely wrong. You would, you would see this one exception. But otherwise, operas generally didn't, uh, didn't appear more than once or twice in other cities at that time. Um, it was always expected to have new ones thereafter. Now, if we jump back into the 20th century, I want to talk about this indiv uh, individual who's Pierre Boulez. I'm sure some of you have heard about this. He's a very famous French composer in the 20th century and also famous for speaking out uh, about new opera and the problems with the operatic canon and the opera industry in inviting in new opera. Um, and so for him, he notes that the reason that we, we have this canon and we enjoy this canon, it's one problem that we have these operas we love. The other problem is that we build these opera houses that can only perform these operas. And so he's saying, oh, if we want to have new works, Sometimes new works have to be smaller. They have to be cheaper. They have to have smaller orchestras. Or maybe you just want to do something different. You don't want to have a massive orchestra, although I know we all love a massive orchestra. Um, and so he's noting you have these opera houses like the Metropolitan Opera where you just simply can't do that. You, well, you have an orchestra on Union, for example, and then you also have so many seats that have to hear it. You can't exactly just have people sitting in the first four rows and expect to pay your rent, right? He notes the large orchestras. He also notes the powerful singers, the people that people usually want to go see are these voices that are, are massive. And... It's partially because they're associated also with these great works, like Wagner, for example. I mean, we all get really excited about a Wagnerian soprano, right? They immediately become famous because, you know, it's rare and unseen, but it's also exciting. And then another thing he notes is the fact that, as Abate and Parker note in their history, we have this drying up in the middle of the 20th century where we stop seeing new works, right? Because, of course, Puccini was happening earlier in the 20th century, so it's really in the mid-20th century that we stop seeing new works. And so for him composing then into the latter half of the 20th century, there's no immediate models for other composers. They're kind of like, well, what, what do I do? Um, I mean, how do I attach, like, how, what is a successful way to engage new audiences, basically? So there's also this hurdle where you kind of always feel like you're jumping into the abyss. And then the other thing he notes is that a lot of composers uh, nowadays, they get their start by doing instrumental work because they go to somewhere like Symphony Hall and they can do a smaller work, and it's also in a smaller space. But they also note that in doing that, it's not necessarily preparing them to perform something at an opera house like the Metropolitan Opera. And so, again, we just don't have this scaffolding to prepare new composers to go to these places and, you know, fill us with these operas that we say we want, but then we don't necessarily have.
he did propose a solution, which I'd like to read for you. For him, he said, only with the greatest difficulty can one present modern opera in a theater in which predominantly repertory pieces are played. It is really unthinkable. The most expensive solution would be to blow up the opera houses. Um, but you don't think that, don't you think that would be the most elegant solution? It's ironically very Wagnerian, isn't it? Uh, but unfortunately, well, not unfortunate. Uh, of course, you probably recognize that didn't necessarily happen. So one of the opera houses that I'm sure he's winking at here in noting a lot of these issues is unsurprisingly the Metropolitan Opera. And that's also partially because of its own very slow history with American opera. I mean, the Met was built as an opera company at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and it wasn't actually until the, after a quarter of a century of the Met existing that it finally performed its first opera by an American composer. Uh, and it was only a one-act opera, so it was definitely experimental. Experimental in the sense that they didn't want to give it an entire evening. Uh, this was The Pipe Desire in 1910. Uh, it's by Converse G.E. Barton, a name I've never otherwise come across, but probably important for us to know at this point. Um, since then, we have seen some new operas be performed, and usually they're given this pride of place because, well, they don't happen often, and also we, it's an American company. We want to see American operas. So we don't see them often, and, but when we do, we see them in these monumental occasions. And I, just to name a few, some I'm sure many of you remember, I mean, there's the 75th Diamond Jubilee, which at that one was Samuel Barber's Vanessa, which we don't see often, but it was composed for that. We have the new opera house, of course, when it was created at Lincoln Center. We had um, another Barber opera, which was Anthony and Cleopatra, which starred Leontine Price. And then one that I thought was interesting, because I actually didn't know about it, was at the turn of the millennium, maybe some of you actually saw this, was John Harbinson's The Great Gatsby apparently happened at the Met. Maybe we'll see it again, maybe we won't, I don't know. But what I want to note in our next clip is that despite these efforts, young composers still don't see opera as something that, uh, an easy way to get into it. And if it does happen, it happens sort of as an afterthought later into their career. And someone who notes this is the composer we're going to be talking about today, which is Kevin Putz. The fact that so much new opera is happening in this country, not only at the Metropolitan Opera, but in companies all over the, the country. You know, my students all want to write operas. When I was a student, I had no interest in doing that because I thought, well, who's going to perform it? You know, maybe I'll write an orchestra piece and try to get an orchestra. Even that would be difficult. Yeah. But these days, it's a real possibility. Well, he's giving us hope at the moment. And there is hope. There's absolutely hope to have you had, obviously, seeing the New York Times article we saw earlier. Uh, so a little bit more about Kevin Putz. So his first opera actually, very excitingly, won the 2012 Pulitzer for music, which is very exciting on your first you know, foray into opera. So this opera is about, uh, it tells the story of the 1914 Christmas truce that happened in World War I between the enemy combatants. And I just wanted to show some clips. You can kind of get a feel of what type of music can be successfully performed in new opera houses to engage new audiences and perhaps also make an homage to past I don't want to say more radical composers, but composers like Boulez, who compose music that is very different from what we're used to hearing in the opera house. So in this first clip, you're going to hear um, some music that's happening during a storm. And it's very, it's very dissonant. It's very jarring. And so that, to me, sort of makes an homage to those past composers. And then after that, we're going to hear the sort of Silent Night hymn, which is very beautiful, very lyrical. And we get this sort of 19th century sound that a lot of us love to go see. I mean, we still love Puccini, right? So... Here is those two clips we'll play back to back here.
I could see why this was popular among audiences and why also it's something that would translate very well to coming to a house like the Metropolitan Opera, where you do have such a strong presence of people wanting lyricism, but also wanting something new. And so thus ushers in the hours in 2022. So this is Putz's, actually his fourth opera. It's not his second. So it's been about a decade, obviously, since he wrote uh, Silent Night. And there's lots of news, as I'm sure many of you saw around this. So there's lots of video footage, which I'm going to take you through and give you a little running commentary on. But one of the things that I love about this story is how the project uh, always comes back to one person. It's Renee Fleming as being the idea person and also one of the big pushes behind getting this project straight to the Metropolitan Opera. So I just wanted to share a clip where uh, she gets to say that in her own words. So this is also from that roundtable I mentioned from last year. I understand that it all began with you, Renee, that you loved The Hours as a film when it came out in 2002. And then in 2017, you were singing De Rosenkavalier, and that incredible finale, that trio of the three female leads, and you got a light bulb moment. <laughs> Tell us how De Rosenkavalier connects to this opera, The Hours. Well, Kevin and I had been discussing, it was his idea to, to let's talk about an opera, and I said, absolutely, that'd be great. Um, and uh, so we were just spitballing titles and ideas, and Paul Batzel in my office mentioned the hours, and I immediately said, what could be better? Three leading female singers, you know, we've uh, everybody loves the trio in Rosenkavalier, and, and, and there are also other spectacular characters, and it's a, an incredibly rich relevant story on so many levels so and Kevin immediately agreed and and shockingly Peter Gelb agreed <laughs> when as a singer when you bring an idea to a major house and a general director you never expect them to say yes you know so so that was a lovely surprise I'm sure Peter if he were here would say Renee I always say yes to you <laughs> well Kevin puts um, as we mentioned you had written a beautiful song cycle for Renee and based on letters of Georgia O'Keeffe? That's right, that's right. Uh, let's see, uh, it goes back to the Eastman School of Music, actually, where Renee and I, Renee was a student for a couple of years, and I did actually two of my degrees at the Eastman School. It's a really wonderful uh, school in Rochester. And uh, they had the idea to commission an alumni composer to write a piece for an, an alumni performer that they wouldn't disclose, and I kind of had a feeling of who it might be. Um, and so eventually we met, and, uh, and uh, they wanted to commission me to write a piece for their orchestra to play in New York when they, when they were on tour, so a student orchestra. And Renee and I were talking about some ideas, and um, I think you had said, well, you know, it, you could do some poems uh, if you want, but I'd really like to think about, you know, a character. I think that's sort of like, like, like an opera singer, you know, like a, an American woman, a historical figure. And I found some quotes <clears throat> of Georgia O'Keeffe that were really beautiful and developed that. And then, we, then Renee had the idea to, to broaden that into a story about Stieglitz and O'Keeffe, um, which it's turned into a much bigger sort of multimedia piece. And so it started there. And, and then I, yeah, I had the idea of, you know, why not ask Renee to... <laughs> You know, I wonder how that conversation went. It was pretty well. It was it was at a reception, I think, and I, I was holding a glass of wine, and I think I said, you know, if I ever wrote another opera, would you be in it? And Renee said, of course. So I played that clip a little longer because there's two things I wanted to know. I mean, one, I wanted to know how long it takes for the process of getting an opera from a commission. Well, not even. I mean, this was an idea. Then it was kind of like now we have to get the commission. 
and now we have to put the artistic team together and then you get it premiered. So that was all five years for the hours, which is perhaps slightly exceptional maybe in this day and age, but pretty regular at this point. And I think it's an interesting contrast just to note in the 19th century with like a Verdi opera, for example, I mean, it was like a big deal when it took like a year and a half, right? So I mean, it's just the difficult, I mean, I don't know if it's difficulty, but the way we expect operas to be performed now, it's a much more expansive thing than it was at that time. And I think we often forget that, especially when we have the canon of works that we say, oh, these were great works then and they're great works now. But it was a very different process to make those works happen versus now. And we have to accommodate that if we have these certain expectations. And then the other thing I wanted to note is how much collaboration happens. We don't often get to trace those histories when we look at Verdi, for example. I mean, we know of some collaborations with this librettist, but this collaboration with the singer bringing up ideas and then crafting it coming from something as simple as both being alumni that were invited to do this project at the Eastman School and then from that turning into an opera. It's this very long process. And I think we often, when we get trapped in this idea of the canon and these singular works, we overlook how these histories made them come to pass and how we also have to make space for those, especially when we're trying to make a new, new works and a new canon. Another thing I wanted to note, so one of the big deals about The Hours is that it was a star-studded cast, right? Like everyone saw that cast come out and was like, oh, I have to go see The Hours because we have Kelly O'Hara in it, we have Renee Fleming, we have Joyce DiDonato. And what I think is so interesting based on what we saw in the interview is how Renee Fleming had sort of the power as a singer to not only suggest this topic, but make this happen. Um, and why I want to note this is because you don't typically see that happening in the 19th century or even the 20th century. It's typically all up not only to the opera house, who is obviously usually led by a white man, but also to the composer, who is also typically a white man. And so it's very exciting to see this kind of, I mean, in some ways, feminist opera that comes out from being female-led and seeing that happen. And I think, it, I think it deserves to be recognized, is what I'm saying. Another thing I want to note is that there is in the path, in the history, uh, we often see composers will choose certain houses in order to get certain singers, because certain singers would be hired out of a particular house, and then composers such as Strauss, when he wrote Der Rosenkavalier, only because it's been spoken about so many times, he went specifically to Dresden because he wanted those singers to be in his opera, and they're hired there. Obviously, the Metropolitan Opera is a little different because it's a contract house as opposed to a house that hires singers for an entire season. But it is interesting to me, again, seeing here where someone like Rene Fleming, who is like a staple at this point of the Metropolitan Opera, right? She's a figurehead. And so how, once again, that Kevin Putz coming to Renee Fleming might have been this way of also coming to the Metropolitan Opera. And then the other historical, I mean, just other things, uh, historical things to note is we can think of this same relationship happening with like Leontine Price and Barber at the Metropolitan Opera in the mid of the 20th century. I imagine Barber probably knew doing an opera at the Met, or at the Met, well, he wanted particularly Leontine Price. So I mean, how these things are all connected is all I'm noting. So in this next clip, I just have Putz talking a little bit more about the process of getting to compose for Renee's voice. Because again, usually we have an opera and then we say, oh, this person's got a great voice to fit in that, as opposed to molding it to a particular person. I wrote Clarissa's part for Renee because I know her so well. I've worked with her so much and she knows me. And so she's comfortable telling me every, <laughs> telling me every, every possible little nook and cranny that she would like, you know, can we, can we change this a little bit? And um, I'm very happy to do that. There's actually nothing like it, you know, to, to work so closely with one of the great performers in the world um, and, and for her to feel like the part fits her like a glove, you know, at a certain point. And it's, it's not maybe right away, but it takes, it takes some time. And so it's very gratifying um, to, to do that. A little bit about the hours. The story is the single day in the lives of these three women. We have Clarissa Vaughn, which is uh, played by Renee Fleming. 
and she's in New York in 1999. We have Virginia Woolf, who's in England in 1923, which is played by Joyce. And then we have Laura Brown, which is played by Kelly O'Hara, and she's in Los Angeles in 1949. So basically the Cliff Notes version of this, we have Clarissa organizing a party for her friend Richard, uh, who also happens to be a past lover. And Richard, the party is partially to honor him and also because she feels a little bit distraught over the fact that he's struggling with AIDS-related complications. Then we have Virginia in the middle who is struggling to write her novel, Miss Dalloway, and she is also currently uh, struggling with her own mental health, which of course leads to her, well, uh, implied demise at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the opera. We don't see it, but we know historically it happens. And then we have Laura who is reading Mrs. Dalloway and is also struggling with her own feelings of being trapped as a housewife, a suburban housewife, that is, in 1949. And then at the end, basically, as their situations grow more dire, we see throughout um, vignettes of their own lives and how they meld together in some ways. And at the end, they, in a magical moment, come together when things seem most dire and at a moment to see hope for the future, I guess, is where it really leaves off. So what I wanted to note next is it was a book that was then adapted into a film, and then it was adapted into an opera. And so I just wanted to notice the differences between what it means to have a film versus an opera, and then what it means to go from that film and or book into an opera. And so once again, we're gonna hear from some of the creators of the hours, particularly the director, the librettist, and the composer in this clip. One of the challenges um, for this project was um, because there are three separate stories, to not make it feel like three short operas intertwined, but to make it feel like it's one whole piece. So we worked really hard to try to make the voices um, distinct, but also make it feel um, cohesive. I started thinking about what you could do in music that you can't do in a film or in a book. The kind of simultaneity is the kind of overlap that can happen between these, uh, these three different women living in these three different time periods that you could, you could establish the stories and then gradually begin to blur the lines. And, and all of that is possible on the operatic stage and through music, through harmony, through notation. So we have to find an equivalence of that with the staging, creating those different worlds. But you move really fast between them. So just going back to the film of the hours, again, I don't know how many memories everyone has of it, but the, the music was composed by Philip Glass, who I'm sure many of you remember from the opera he recently, recently revived at the Met, which is Akhenaten. And what's interesting about his score for the hours is that it doesn't actually differentiate between the different times and places. It just gives a general affect for what the characters are feeling. Uh, I don't actually have an answer for why that is, why he made that choice, but I do think it's interesting um, to think about how it might have been affected by the film process. Because of course in film, they film it and then they give it to a composer and say, here's some scenes, what do you think musically goes along with that? And I wonder if that impacted his choice to do a generally uh, a score that was all sounding similar versus in this opera where you have in many ways, I mean, the plot is obviously coming first to an extent, but the plot is simultaneously really being written with the music, right? You have the librettist working with uh, the composer, suggesting words, and then those inspire or even the musician might have thoughts on what the music might sound like and then add words to it, which has happened for many operas in the past. So anyway, just a very different, uh, a more collaborative uh, process, which maybe led to what, why the opera sounds different. So now I just wanted to, I've been talking a lot about the music and kind of giving you interviews, and so now I want to dip your, dip your toes or get you, give you a little taste of what these differences are, which are sometimes easier to hear when someone points them out in little excerpts rather than 
when you're being overwhelmed by all of it, or and just simply the emotion and the plot in the opera house. So one of the big things that I've been noting here is the depiction of time, right? We have different times and we have different places. And so how exactly is that done in the hours? Well, what we do see is that there's a different sort of atmosphere and sound given to each of the characters. And so our first one that I want to look at is Virginia Woolf. So Virginia Woolf is in 1923 England. And we end up getting a soundscape from her that's very sparse. It's usually chamber music, so meaning it has maybe a few stringed instruments as well as a piano. And is generally, uh, she's also given these very lyrical moments where it's kind of like she's, um, yeah, like she's singing some art song over top of a piano. Part of me wonders whether or not, I actually don't know if Joyce Donato was already cast before he started writing this music, because it's interesting to think about, given her specialty as a Baroque specialist, that you would have this sort of sparks orchestration, which she would be very used to performing over. So I don't know if that impacted it, but small theory. So anyway, what we're going to hear here is, this is her the first scene where we first meet Virginia Woolf and she's writing Miss Dalloway, and we're also being confronted with her own anxieties. And you're going to hear that sparse orchestration I mentioned underneath. And then at the very end of the clip, you're going to start to hear this sort of bubbling, I guess you can call it a dissonant motif. It's not quite dissonant, but it's definitely not as peaceful and, and smooth as the, what we've heard come to pass before. And this ends up evolving into this sort of water motif that occurs throughout the entire opera, this, uh, which obviously is linked to um, Virginia Woolf. She, when she kills herself, she just throw, wants to throw herself into the river. And so the water, perhaps, is tr it ends up representing some of the anxieties towards wanting to end her own life, but also maybe the peace of doing it as well. So it kind of has this amorphous way that it moves throughout the entire score, as I'll kind of show you later. Uh, but anyway, what you're going to hear is the sort of the beginning of that at the very end of this clip, kind of coming in as like a, an anxiety. I think it sounds like water. <laughs> but it also, I mean, you can notice that, well, for those of you who've seen it, they're saying the flowers, which again resonates with uh, Clarissa before this. We'll talk about Clarissa, the Renee Fleming character, is going to the flower shop. And so we're again seeing this sort of, uh, this very early blurring of the time periods. Uh, so the next one, which I'm sure many of you uh, noticed, because it's one of the most tuneful, is the 1950s theme, which is associated with Laura Brown. She's 1949, but obviously, you know, can be considered 1950s. Uh, music and here we're hearing so it's kind of has a big band jazzy feel to it.
Then we have Clarissa's theme next, which is one that is the least, perhaps, easy to identify to a particular time period. She tends to be the sort of lyrical, romantic thrust of the entire piece that kind of wraps the opera. And so here we're going to hear Clarissa at the beginning when she is she's preparing for to make this party wonderful for Richard. And so she's off to get flowers, and she repeats the word wonderful many times to get her point across. But we are going to hear this sort of orchestra push, which is, again, this... This music that I, I find so hard to disassociate from Renee Fleming, because it sounds to me a lot like if anyone saw her in Andre, uh, Andre Previn's um, A Streetcar Named Desire, it has this like very 19th century romantic thrust to it. So to me, in this music, you can also hear how Putz had clearly worked with Renee Fleming and knew what type of style she liked to sing to. So in the first act, we generally keep these worlds pretty separate between the women and their time periods. And then in the second act, we start to see these lines get blurred, which is obviously all leading towards the final trio when they meet each other in a, a spiritual, I don't know what else to call it, a, a spiritual experience. So one comparison I wanted to show was there's two duets between the Kelly O'Hara character, which is Laura Brown, and the Virginia Woolf character with Joyce Donato. And these mostly happen between these two characters because Laura Brown is reading Mrs. Dalloway, and of course, Virginia Woolf is at a time when she's writing it. And so the first one is when we first meet Laura Brown. She's reading the Miss Dalloway book. And we have this duet happen between them as Virginia is also thinking about writing it. Uh, the things to note here are that it's a, it's the way they sing is generally separate. So you'll have the Laura Brown character sing, and then the Virginia Woolf character will sing, and their voices don't often overlap, kind of still showing that they're in separate times and places. And we also don't have, we definitely don't have any of the water motif yet. You you have a, a push that sounds, the music sounds very much in Virginia's world, because, of course, Laura Brown is entering Virginia's world. But generally, yeah, you don't have them overlapping in harmony so that we know it's separate. So we're going to listen to that first. Oh, oh, oh. 
So what you notice is there, as I mentioned, we were in Virginia's world, right? At first you heard the piano, and then we sort of had that romantic thrust, which is ambiguously Clarissa, but also ambiguously sort of time in the hours. Um, another thing to note, as I mentioned, they don't typically seem to be singing in set harmony. Like the voices are still very dissonant when they sing together, and generally their, their entries are staggered so that it doesn't always sound like they're right over top of each other. We see this completely contrast, at least in my opinion, in Act Two, where suddenly we have Laura Brown has run away from home, and she's gone, and she's taken a bottle of pills. Well, she hasn't taken it. She's got it. And she's now in a hotel or a motel. I don't know if it's a hotel or motel, but anyway, one of those. And she's there, and she starts, she has Miss Dalloway with her, and once again is connecting with the books. She's also having this moment of considering taking her own life. And then we also then have Virginia Woolf appear at the bottom of the stage, and she herself is also thinking about the river and about taking her own life. And so we see the two of them suddenly come much closer together. What we have is that water theme come back through the, the whole prelude to, so this is the very beginning of Act Two. The whole prelude to Act Two is sort of playing with that water theme that then comes, it gets elaborated and, and drawn through all of the second act, sort of, again, as I mentioned, wrapping it all together. And we're gonna see that in, wrap the two soloists as they sing. You're, it's gonna kind of bring a more at least to me, a more cohesive tapestry to where they sound like they're much closer together. And then we're also going to hear harmonies that to me sound much more, uh, I don't want to say pleasurable, but to describe them as, I mean, they're thirds and sixths, so they're much more consonant and so sounding less dissonant than the other one. So it sounds again like they're going through a similar experience and commiserating in this moment. And it's obviously the sort of beginning of them leading to the end where they actually come together because they're going through similar experiences. I will note I'm fundamentally biased because I personally found the second act much more compelling than the first act. So I'm very happy I could I could share that with you. But I definitely, if you haven't seen it yet and you don't perhaps enjoy the first act, definitely stay for the second act because it's wonderful. Uh, and then I wanted to note that to me, the water theme comes back at the end for the trio, as I've sort of been alluding here, uh, where you can hear it 
where it seems to almost be the echoes when they're sort of echoing one another. I don't know, maybe it's a metaphor for their anxiety, but also their release and their, their acceptance of it. And then it's sort of, it's like they're riding the waves here at the end of the trio, in my mind. So I'll let you perhaps imagine that or imagine something else while you listen to it. For those who haven't seen it, I, I should mention the trio happens at the very end. This is when they suddenly cross between each other's worlds and, and meet one another and comfort one another, really. One of the things that the, the three women who went on many talk shows and did many interviews talking about this piece, one of the things they emphasize in many of these interviews is the timeliness of the piece. So I just wanted to let you hear about some of their opinions on that. Uh, this is them speaking for Good Morning America. Right, right. So Kevin Putz and I had been working on a George O'Keefe project, and he said, how about an opera? I said, of course. And so we were sort of, you know, just spitballing titles. And when the hours came up, I said, oh, that's it. That's got to be it. I mean, just to have three women singing together, you always look for opportunities for ensembles and trios and duos. And, I, and the story is compelling and so relevant. Mental health, AIDS, um, we just are in, still in a pandemic. So it was just a perfect opportunity to bring something great. Some of the issues, contemporary issues that Renee Fleming was noting, one is mental health, obviously, especially after the pandemic, many people are learning much more about how to deal in different situations. And also we're learning more and more and accepting more and more the differences that other people have with mental health and how to deal with that, which has changed radically over the past few decades in acceptance of different treatments and also even being diagnosed for many different things. Um, another thing that she notes is the pandemic. Um, I have a little sticking point here, which is that she sort of equivocates the pandemic and the AIDS crisis, um, which is slightly problematic only because, oh, well, it's, it's problematic because the AIDS crisis was very different in that it targeted very particular community and the lack of government action that happened was a result of the lack of care for or even desire to help that community. In the pandemic, obviously we've seen it's infected many different communities very differently and obviously people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and um, of different races have been impacted far more than others. But it's just different in the way that everyone was in some way able to access help and was not cut out. Or, or deliberately ignored in the process. I also want to talk about Terence Blanchard. The other opera in this lecture is Champion. And I wanted to note how new opera, while we've been talking about it, discussing relevant issues, one of the 
other relevant issues that has been brought to the Met is the lack of black talent and also the active attempt to blockade it over the last century in opera and also specifically at the Met. And so Terence Blanchard was, as I'm sure many of you know, I guess was and is, the first black composer to compose an opera that has been performed at the Metropolitan Opera. And that was last season with Fire Shut From My Bones. And now we're getting his champion this year. He talks about what it's like to be chosen to have that responsibility and what that means for him. I didn't know that I was going to be the first African-American to have a production at the Met. I didn't know that. So when this journalist told me that, he said, how's it feel? I went, I had no idea. And it's still like a very powerful notion because my answer has always been to that question. It's overwhelming and it's a huge honor, but I know I'm, I'm not the first African-American qualified to have been in this position. So noting that, but he did an interview in which they explored some of the annals of the Metropolitan Opera and also looking at what was written of the operas that were presented, black composers who wanted to compose for the Metropolitan Opera, and it said why they were rejected. And so here's a clip where they go through that and just seeing uh, Blanchard sort of explore that as someone who was finally chosen to present a work at the Metropolitan Opera. Amateurish. Amateurish, right. This ledger book from the early 1900s contains the Met's internal notations about opera submissions. Uninteresting, mm-hmm. right? Not suitable for the Metropolitan. It's funny that they take themselves so seriously that he writes out Metropolitan each time. I know! You know? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> There's not that much space. In its 138 years, America's leading opera house and largest performing arts institution had never staged an opera by a black composer. The arts are supposed to be the things that bring us together, that throw away all of those notions of bigotry and intolerance, right? So it breaks my heart to think that William Grant Still approached the Met and was turned away. William Grant Still, known as the Dean of African American Composers, submitted three operas to the Met over a 20-year span. In the 20s and 30s, what kind of opportunities existed for William Grant Still? None. Everything was measured by what happened here mm-hmm. at the Met. This is the place that makes the statement for the rest of the world. These are all people whose works didn't make it on right. that stage. And right. Mrs. Horatio Parker, Mrs. Frances Thurber, right. Gertrude Old Thomas, William Brand Still, women, African Americans, people wanted to perform here. They saw this as the pinnacle, and mm-hmm. the commentary is just so dismissive. So dismissive. Do you think there's some racial component to this rejection? <laughs> Do you think there's <laughs> racial component to this? Listen, man, there's misogyny all over this too with all of these women that were rejected, right? But this time, it was the Met that reached out to Blanchard. Called me up and said, we want to put your opera on at the, on at the Met. Because I'm like, did this really just happen? Then all of a sudden, boom, and it blows up and takes off like a runaway freight train. So Champion uh, is Blanchard's first work, so that now we're going back in time, for those of you who saw uh, Fire Shut Up and My Bones, now you're hearing an earlier work that he did. It was originally premiered in 2013 uh, at Opera St. Louis. <laughs> and uh, it has a, a subtitle to it, which is that it's called an opera in jazz rather than a jazz opera. And this distinction, although it may seem trifling, is actually very significant. It's Significant because jazz is no longer just a modifier to the word opera, but is actually an essential context for the entire work. And Blanchard notes this himself in a quote where he says, 
I'm, uh, I'm trying to take American folklore that I know, that I've experienced, which is jazz, and bring that into the operatic world, but not totally use the entire piece to make a statement about jazz. I thought, just for a little background, it would be useful to go through some of the history of jazz opera, just very briefly. So similar to the history of jazz, jazz opera was generally dominated by white artists, despite jazz being primarily cultivated by African-American artists. As early as 1924, actually, the Met announced that it was searching for a jazz opera. And there was apparently three comp uh, potential composers in mind, and all three, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, were white. One was Irving Berlin, a famous Broadway composer. Then there was Jerome Kern of showboat fame. And then there was George Gershwin, who, of course, later would compose Porgy and Bess. One of the composers, well, this Harry Lawrence Freeman is a black composer that was wanted to write an opera and also was very interested in opera. He was a Wagner aficionado himself. And he actually, when unclear if it was this announcement, but there was a call made for a jazz opera and Freeman did write an opera for it called An American Romance, a jazz opera. Unfortunately, the opera never ended up reaching the stage. Another composer who was very influential in the sort of the gestation of jazz opera was George Gershwin, as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear. He had an earlier jazz opera than Porgy and Bess, and this was Gershwin's Blue Monday, which was written in 1922. It's a very short work, and it's subtitled Opera à la Afro-Americaine. I tried to do that with a French accent, because I assume it's supposed to be sort of a, a New Orleans reference, but perhaps not. Anyway, this opera actually was orchestrated by a black composer, and this was Will Vaudry. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that in a second. And what you're going to hear is that it includes jazz-inspired recitatives alongside these very Italian-esque aria formations that you'll hear at the end. What I want to note about the piece, though, is that its racial pol politics are quite troubling. You might not be surprised to hear that when it was first performed, it was performed by white performers in blackface. And then, of course, riddled throughout the text. I mean, maybe not, of course, but you should know, riddled throughout the text are a bunch of racial slurs and racial stereotypes. We're not going to hear any of those, though, in what we're going to play. But what we are going to hear is the, uh, a clip from the end of the overture, which, as I mentioned, Vaudry orchestrated. So we'll hear that. And then we'll hear a little bit of the beginning of these sort of Italian-esque recitative aria-like passages.
democratic style. And like the grand opera, the theme will be love, hate. So the next little example I just wanted to show, there was jazz also infiltrated the mind of Europeans as well, especially in Germany during the 1920s, and one of the composers that sort of tried to wrangle with this, or at least exploit it perhaps, is Ernst Krenick, who wrote Johnny Spielt Auf. And this was an opera that's about a tale of an American jazz violinist. And so the story is about a, a classical, stodgy, modernist composer who gets his violin stolen from him by a black performer, um, which is Johnny. And it's supposed to be basically a metaphor for the, the jazz tradition taking over from the classical tradition. And it does have a sort of positive moral at the end where the idea is that this is the music of the future and perhaps the classical music of the future, although that didn't necessarily play out the way maybe Krennic saw it happening. Another thing to note about it is that when it was performed in the United States, it was performed again in blackface. What's interesting to note from African-Americans who went to see these pieces uh, they noted that these operas capitalized on jazz, but once again, the inherent irony, of course, was that opera, these operas continued to ex exclude black performers and black talent. Another little thing through our history of sort of opera and jazz, I just wanted to note, note one thing with Louis Armstrong, that jazz musicians have also been inspired by opera, and we're going to also see this with Blanchard. Louis Armstrong apparently listened to Caruso, Tetrazzini, Galli who are all famous Met uh, singers of the early 19-teens. And also that Louis Armstrong in his own music made allusions to opera. One of the most obvious is Mac the Knife, which is a melody taken from the Three Penny Opera, which is an opera we actually don't hear very often. So I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't know the, the actual theme until I listened to it. But here we're going to hear the Mac the Knife in Three Penny Opera. And then we're just going to listen to a quick cl clip of Mac the Knife with Louis Armstrong. Flash like diamonds, shine and sparkle in the night. But McKeith wears just a switchblade. So as we've seen, we've sort of been exploring the history of jazz opera, and particularly this term, jazz opera. And so what we've seen is there is a history here of black operatic composition that was often overlooked, but also was a great inspiration for many of these jazz operas, particularly in white authored works, as we saw. And then also that it had opera itself had an influence then upon jazz composers. And that clearly influenced Terence Blanchard, who is a famous trumpeter, jazz trumpeter, and then also film composer. And so in this next clip, he does note how these histories have influenced him and his own compositional process that obviously is in Fire Shut Up My Bones and in Champion. I've been a f fan of Puccini and I've heard a lot of classic opera growing up because of my father. So he would play Carmen, he would play Rigoletto, he would play a lot of those things all the time. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I wasn't allowed to touch those records. You know, I, I couldn't even <laughs> put my hands on them. You know, uh, but hearing all of those those uh, those arias reminded me of how the shape of the melodic line was directly related to what the story was saying. 
you know, the apex of the story and the apex of the melody, melodic line, coincided. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do with this is just bring in the notion of what jazz harmony and jazz progressions are and that melodic content, but put it in this setting. So I, and I also wanted the, 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 the melodic lines to feel natural in the voice. So, you know, I've, I was like really meticulous about this. I would literally read the libretto out loud to myself and listen to the rhythms in my voice speaking it. And I have scratch pads all over my house of the libretto with rhythms underneath the libretto. And that's how it would start. Wow. And then from there, I would take it and start to write melodic lines. And sometimes I would put harmony if I'm hearing harmony. But the main thing was to write melodic lines and make notes of where the storyline is and put no bar lines there because I wanted everything to feel natural. I didn't want it to feel like I'm trying to force it into 4-4 four, four or 3-4 or anything like that. One of the things that we talked about with the cast is that African-American singers coming to the Met usually come from the church. And they get a chance to sing opera, but don't get a chance to bring that part of themselves to opera. Right, so one of the things that I told them, I said, you know, if I'm gonna have a place in this world, uh, in the operatic world, one of the things that I wanna do is allow for all of that to come back in, whether it's gospel church, I don't care what it is, because you were talking about doing stories of our time, and I think that's part of the thing of bringing our culture into the realm mm -hmm. of, of opera. So uh, Angel, <laughs> she was on a Zoom call, and she heard it and she told me, she said, uh, do you mind? She asked me, if, would I mind her taking some liberties? And I said, I'm a jazz musician, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, Art Blakey said jazz was invented because somebody messed up, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm like, I'm all about it. I also wanted to let us hear from some of the performers who have performed Champion, especially given this improvisational um, aspect that they get to wrangle with. So in this next clip, I just wanted to note some of the performers here talk about what it's like to perform Champion, and this was from the New Orleans revival that happened um, a few years ago, well, before the pandemic. Being in an opera and jazz means that I have more of an ability, a, a possibility of, of improvising on some of the notes, and it's not as strict, let's say, as, as Mozart would be or, or any of the other operatic composers. It gives me more freedom. It, um, the opera is built more on, let's say, American idioms, uh, Caribbean idioms, um, New Orleans um, musical idioms, I should say. So we've got all of that blues. Everything is, is, is included in, in, in this jazz piece, this original piece that we're doing. Singing in opera and jazz is much different than singing like Mozart or Rossini because you have all these complex rhythms, you have these complex harmonies, you have the ability to uh, rip, as they say, or make it up on the spot. You don't have to be married to the score as long as it, it, it gets into the core, basically what Terrence said. So that is much different than the stringency of like Mozart or Verdi or Handel operas. Uh, so just a bit about the plot. So Champion is basically a series of flashbacks by an, uh, an older at this point, Emil Griffith, who is um, suffering from dementia. And so the episodes are told chronologically, but they're revolving around this championship fight that Emil Griffith fights in, I'm trying to, I think it's the end of the 1960s. And it leads up to when in this fight he ends up killing his opponent, which is Benny Parrott. And part of the reason that it's 
at least told that he did so is because in an interview before the fight, Benny makes this homophobic comment toward um, Emil, who was at that time struggling with his sexuality. And so as a result, arguably that, that made him um, end the life of his opponent in, at this, this at the end of Act 1. And then in Act 2, we continue to see Emil struggle with his own sexuality as well as the guilt that he has over what he did at the end of Act 1 in the second act. And then also some of the physical challenges thereafter when he's also struggling with injuries from, that he's had throughout his career. I find Terence Blanchard is much more uh, charismatic in talking about his opera than I necessarily am. So I'd like to just share this clip in which he, he talks about what drew him to the subject and what he finds so compelling about it. I think people should come out to check out Champion because it's a very compelling story. It's just, it's, it's drama. It's the story of Emil Griffith, who was a great fighter, champion in the 60s, who fought a guy by the name of Benny Perrette. The interesting thing about it is that Emil Griffith was gay. In the press conference, Benny Perrette, trying to get an edge on his opponent, outed him. I think his aggression got the better of him at, certain, at a certain point. The fight has been stopped, and the winner and new champion is Emil Griffith, but we're more concerned about the condition of uh, Benny Kid Perrette. He put Benny Perrette in a coma, and 10 days later, Benny Perrette died. Emil's life took a tailspin, but the interesting thing happened once he started to do his autobiography. He said, you know, I killed a man and the world forgave me, yet I love the man and the world wants to kill me. And I thought that was, first of all, I thought it was a very powerful statement, but unfortunately, it's still a very relevant statement. You know, to think that he had accomplished so much, but yet he still couldn't be free to live his life the way he would want to, I think is a tragedy. The last end of that word is tragedy. One of the notable things about Champion is that it includes both a chamber orchestra, so a chamber orchestra is just a reduced size orchestra, basically not a full orchestra like, like you would see at, uh, sorry, at the Metropolitan Opera, although maybe they've adapted it for the Metropolitan Opera in this case and made it much larger. I actually don't know about that. But then it also includes a jazz quartet. So you get to see these two orchestra forces sort of speaking to each other and also speaking to one another in harmony throughout the piece.
That was Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans discussing how Kevin Putz's The Hours and Terrence Blanchard's Champion have expanded the operatic canon. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.